0: Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. Listener mail. This is Robert
0: Lamb. And this is Joe McCormick, and it's Monday, the day of each week that we read back messages from our mailbox. If you have never gotten in touch before, why not email us? You can reach us at contact at stufftoblowymind dot com. We like messages of any sort, especially feedback to recent episodes, and especially if you've got something interesting to add to a topic we recently talked about on the show. But uh, whatever else you want to write about, that's fine too. Send it on in. Contact at stuff to blow your mind. Dot com. What you got going on right now, Rob? Well,
1: nobody asked about this, but I'm... Going, <laughs> no, no no listeners asked about it, obviously. But um, I do want to throw in that in our Weird House Cinema episode about the viewing, the topic of Lapsang Sushong tea came up. And at yeah. the time, um, none of us had any experience drinking it before. So um, after we talked about it a little bit, I ordered some up. Um, I've now brewed up a few different cups of it. Um, and I have attempted to add the perfect amount of honey so that i can have the proper viewing experience Mm. and i have to say it's a very interesting tea um i was a little frightened at first when i smelled just the pure smokiness um of the dried tea but the taste is a lot more subtle and uh yeah
0: i think i'm growing to like it it tastes like tea smells like a big old barbecue brisket
1: well at first that was kind of what the, the the sense i got when i opened the um uh, the, the 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 pouch of tea for the first time, you know, yeah. like the whole house immediately smelled like this kind of like smoked, you know, deeply smoked, uh, almost liquid smoke kind of a, a scent. Mm-hmm. But that dissipated, and um, and then once it's brewed up, you know, it's uh, I, I find that the, the the aroma is not as intense, and it is not like core to the flavor.
0: You know, it's interesting. I find that I really enjoy smoky flavors in food. Uh, And so I like some smoky ingredients, but smelling the smoky ingredients on their own, I often find kind of unpleasant. Like uh, Mm -hmm. one example is smoked paprika. If you ever want a like vegetarian alternative to adding bacon to a dish, smoked paprika will get you part of the way there. I mean, it doesn't have pork fat in it, but it it brings a lot of that great smoky aroma that you get from like a smoked meat product and some of that complexity But I find when I just smell smoked paprika by itself, it is an overpowering and unpleasant aroma. It's only good once it goes into the mix with other things.
1: Yeah, yeah. I feel the same way about, uh, uh, honestly, about like scotch uh, and um, uh, uh, alcohol of that nature. You know, it's like I just straight scotch. I never had a real uh, passion for, uh, but I did like some cocktails that had scotch in them.
0: Well, I guess there are smoky scotches and non-smoky scotches. Yeah, yeah. yeah some really some really go for it. The the Pete trolls that uh <laughs> Yeah.
1: Anyway, enough enough about my beverages. Uh, I'll be back in a future listener mail episode to talk about the perfect screwdriver. <laughs> <laughs> That's right.
0: Okay, uh let's go on to our first messages. Uh we're gonna kick things off today with a two-part response to our series on anomalous imagery. This is two different emails from our listener, Ian. Uh, Let's see, Rob, do you want to read the first one here? All right, here we go.
1: Uh, Dear Rob and Joe, I was listening to your recent episode about the Dendera Light and your brief discussion of palimpsest that made me realize that there is a form of palimpsest that most of your listeners will be familiar with, though they've probably never thought about it in those terms, I certainly hadn't. It is the computer hard drive. There is, of course, the surface-level comparison, wherein hard drives are erased and overwritten repeatedly as you use your computer, but the similarities go deeper than that. For instance, when you delete a file on your computer, the actual data is not erased from the drive. Only the reference to that data that tells your computer operating system where on the drive the file is located in order to access it. On a mechanical hard drive, or HDD, I'm not sure how applicable this information may be to newer solid-state drives or SSDs, the actual data comprising the file remains on the drive until the computer needs that space for another file and only then is actually overwritten. Even then, the overriding is not perfect, and it is sometimes possible to use special software to recover old data that is underneath newer data, at least partially. For this reason, there is even security software available for computers which use sensitive data, which constantly overwrites the empty portions of the drive with junk data to ensure that any deleted files are truly obliterated and not recoverable. It is somewhat akin to scribbling on and then erasing a chalkboard over and over to ensure that everything that was once written on it can't still be read finally your discussion of what i'm going to call open-minded skepticism involving being highly skeptical of any claims uh, that such and such has done by aliens while still being open to the possibility that one day evidence of alien intelligence may be discovered reminded me of a saying often used on the pbs spacetime youtube channel when discussing new and strange observations in astronomy The saying goes, remember, it's never aliens until it's aliens. (laughs) Thank you for doing more than your fair share of
0: encouraging curiosity and reminding us all of the importance of open-minded skepticism, Ian. Well, thank you for the kind words, Ian. And uh, uh, yeah, I appreciate the shout out to the PBS Space Time show. I'm not a regular viewer, but I think I've watched a few episodes of that and and thought they were quite good. As for uh, the idea of a palimpsest, being sort of reproduced, at least metaphorically, or or, I don't know, maybe you could say literally in a computer hard drive. Yeah, that's interesting. So palimpsests came up in our discussion because we were talking about how like so an ancient Egyptian inscription uh, You know, there there might be one set of hieroglyphics on it at one point, and then there would be, you know, that would decay over time. And then there would be a process of maybe partially plastering over that and then putting new inscription, like new information in it, maybe new hieroglyphics or illustrations of things on top of the old one. And this would happen on maybe the walls of a temple or like a monument or something like that. And the result was that you could get these sort of illusory emergent mixtures of the two different inscriptions. So you could have the the part on top decaying and then part of the hieroglyphics represented there would sort of bleed into where the hieroglyphics below were revealed. Creating these symbols that aren't actually part of the language. They're just sort of like, you know, these random emergent uh, bleed through kind of creations. And some of them look like weird stuff, like a helicopter or something like that. Mm. Anyway, so I wonder if uh, by way of th- this analogy with a computer hard drive being like a palimpsest, you could get similar things. Like in the future, will will there be people looking back in time at like a preserved computer hard drive or maybe the data image of a preserved computer hard drive and see things emerging, see illusory like sentences or something emerging because of splicing together of data from, from different points of, of overriding? I, I don't know if it actually works like that or works in a way that would give rise to that sort of thing. But, I don't know, that's interesting. It's far less romantic <laughs> to yeah. sounding to me anyway.
1: But, uh, you know, future uh, societies may feel differently about the matter.
0: Will bits of work emails appear to run straight through into snippets of text from your discarded draft of your erotic vampire novel? <laughs> well, all vampire novels are erotic, Joe. <laughs> okay, we got a second email from Ian. Ian says, Dear Robin Joe, last week I wrote in about open minded skepticism and PBS Space Times approach that it's never aliens until it's aliens. As of the time of writing this, I've not yet listened to the listener mail episode that previous message would have appeared on. Well, you certainly have not because it's this one today. Mm -hmm. Uh, Ian says, so I don't know yet if you read it on the air. In the interim, I have now listened to your previous listener mail and the discussion about the difficulty of traveling between stars making visitation by aliens unlikely. I share Joe's view that I don't find any supposed difficulty particularly convincing when we're presumably talking about beings with far more advanced technology than we have. Uh, by the way, for people who don't remember that previous discussion or didn't hear it, my point was that um, I wouldn't rule out the possibility of alien visitation on Earth based on saying, oh, it's just too difficult to travel between stars, because my view now is just that I don't think we know enough to say whether that's too difficult or whether it's possible or not. You know, that's just an open question. But that doesn't mean I think aliens have been visiting the Earth. I just think that that is not a particular reason I would rule it out. Instead, I would just say, where's the evidence? Mm -hmm. But Ian comes back to say, uh, once again, PBS Space Time has become relevant, specifically the episode is interstellar travel possible? That episode discusses the dangers and difficulties posed by traveling to another star and investigates whether they are solvable. The oversimplified version is that traveling from one star to the next should be doable if not exactly with our current technology, then with technology only a little more advanced than we currently possess. Essentially, from a physics standpoint, we know the problem is solvable, and achieving it is what I like to call an engineering problem. Granted, actually solving that that problem would be a massive undertaking for our current civilization, and it certainly wouldn't be easy, but there's no reason to think it couldn't be done. As Matt, I guess that's the host of uh, PBS Spacetime, as Matt sums up in the episode, the universe may be trying to kill us, but it's not trying quite hard enough. <laughs> That's good. Uh, So given that traveling from one star to another is conceivably achievable in the not-too-distant future, uh, technologically at least, resource allocation being an entirely different matter, just like how no one has gone back to the moon since the 70s despite us clearly having the technology— Uh, A civilization even a few hundred or thousand years more advanced than ours should be able to do it without too much trouble. Certainly not so much trouble that it serves as an explanation for why UAPs can't be aliens, or as a satisfactory answer to the Fermi Paradox. Personally, I find Occam's Razor a far more convincing argument against alien visitation than any specific practical objection as to why it's impossible." As always, thank you for your wonderful and enlightening podcast, Ian. Well, thank you for both emails, Ian. Uh, and I would say regarding the second one, uh, yeah, I, I think you're right on the money. I, I would agree with you here. I don't see any particular reason to rule out the possibility of alien visitation. The stuff about the difficulty of traveling, that, that doesn't seem uh like a prohibitive consideration to me though it is something I guess we should consider you know arguments of that sort uh, but that that's not enough to rule it out for me instead it's just the dearth of good evidence like we've been talking about in these episodes it's just like you you would expect at some point to have good evidence that that it's actually aliens and not just one of the millions of things that, you know, we've seen over and over again being mistaken for aliens like balloons and camera artifacts and airplanes and birds and uh, natural geological formations and animals of various types and all kinds of weird looking natural phenomena and pieces of human technology always being mistaken for aliens. And then when you get more information, oh, oh, actually, this is what it is.
1: Yeah, you know, I, I I still come back to the the scale of things though um, in thinking about all this, and I, I was reminded of this after um, our initial episodes we were just disc- when we were where we were discussing this because I was listening to the the audio book of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and there's there's mm-hmm. one great part in there where Douglas Adams is talking about how the sheer size of the universe is is such that the human imagination cannot contain it, mm-hmm. and I thought that was um, the, a well-written little, uh, little phrase there to sort of sum it up. Like, it is just so big that even when we think we are understanding the scale we're talking about here, we're only sort of summoning up a placeholder uh, of how truly vast it is and how small we are uh, and how insignificant we are in terms of both, um, you know, location uh, and also duration. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. All right, shall we dive into a little stickiness? Oh, yeah. All right, this one comes to us from Kenny. Kenny says, hi, Rob, Joe, and JJ. I was fascinated by your discussion on the atomic stickiness of gecko feet. I wonder what the evolutionary path for that adaptation was like. Anyway, the topic reminded me of highly polished metals sticking to one another. I'm a PC gamer and enjoy building and upgrading my machine every few years. The central processor in a PC is covered by an integrated heat spreader over which a cooling fan or water block is placed. Since the metal surfaces aren't perfectly smooth, a thermal paste must be applied to fill all the tiny air pockets before the cooler is screwed down. This ensures adequate heat transfer. But better cooling means more performance, so people will take it to the extremes. I saw an enthusiast who had lapped the integrated heat spreader on his CPU. He employed the, quote, Whitworth three plate method, which involves three metal plates labeled A, B, and C. With the aid of an abrasive, they are used to polish one another in alternating pairs A and B, then B and C, then C and A, and so on. The plates smooth one another out and can then be used to polish other objects to very high degrees of smoothness. After lapping both the IHS and the underside of his water block, he achieved such high polish that they fit together perfectly enough to effectively leave zero-trapped gas to act as insulation. What he discovered after the test fitting was that the CPU adhered to the bottom of the cooling block. It was sticky enough to pull the CPU from the socket when he lifted the block. I now realize this must have been due to the van der Waals force as the atoms of the two components were close enough to act as if they were in a single piece of metal. I saw the Action Lab exploring a similar phenomenon in this video about gauge blocks. And uh, Kenny includes a link. I'd meant to send you a topic idea, but this turned
0: into a pretty lengthy email. So I'll save it for next time. Thanks for everything you do, Kenny. Thank you, Kenny. That's really interesting. So if I'm understanding correctly, you're saying like that with... With enough polishing uh, and smoothing of a flat piece of metal, it will stick to another polished flat piece of metal so like even without an adhesive you just like touch them together and they get stuck as if they are glued and that would make sense that i want to be clear that i don't feel confident to judge what are the operative forces here especially since like even experts in this area sometimes disagree about like what are the most uh operative forces and why things are sticking together but uh force from what i know does seem like a plausible explanation so like Normally things don't stick to one another due to van der Waals forces because not enough of their atoms are actually getting close enough together for van der Waals forces to activate, uh, But that's like how the gecko feet work. You know, they've got so many of these extremely tiny little hairs on them uh, that fill in all the nooks and crannies of whatever surface they're touching and get so close to the atoms in the surface that van der Waals' forces take over and they stick. Uh, Most normal things, even when they're touching each other, just can't get that close. And so it sounds like that could be what's happening with these highly polished pieces of metal. Mm -hmm. Though I would wonder also if there is... Uh, if there's a suction cup uh thing going on here, like if the gas between two things is evacuated in some sense, but there is some kind of uh cavity between them, if if there, it's kind of like pushing a suction cup onto a piece of glass or something. I don't know. I, I don't know. Maybe if the polishing wouldn't really leave enough pockets for for there to be uh, voids with negative pressure. I don't know.
1: Well, I mean, one thing that we learned from just looking at the research regarding gecko feet is that You know, it's possible that there are more than one uh, like adhesive situation going on at once with a given scenario. So we we have to acknowledge that.
0: That's right. More than one mechanism could be working at the same time. Mm -hmm. Uh, But yeah, very interesting, Kenny. Thank you. Okay, I think we're going to finish things out today uh, with a message about Weird House Cinema. We have some more good messages, but uh, for for time reasons, I think we need to save them for for next week. Uh, So one more today. This is about Weird House Cinema, and this comes to us from Chalk. Chalk says, Hi guys, on Weird House Cinema on September 1st and As an aside, this would be talking about the Devil's Men, a.k.a. Land of the Minotaur. Chak continues saying, You said the priest and comrade went to the church to get weapons, specifically a crucifix and some holy water. Apparently the filmmaker was also lazy about checking facts. (laughs) Holy water is just water blessed by a priest. He didn't have to go looking for it. He could have just made some. Because he was a priest, right? Yeah, he is a priest, so he could just get some out of the tap, I guess, and bless. That's true. Uh, But Chalk says, um, "Well, what? Too anticlimactic, probably." (laughs) Anyway, thanks for all your shows, Chalk. you know, this is a case where I think it was just more important to be dramatic than to be factual. So they, they wanted to send him to a roadside chapel, a kind of, a kind of decaying, scenic roadside chapel to get the holy mm-hmm. water and get all the, the tools of holiness. Which, by the way, I don't even recall them using the holy water in the movie. Did they use it? I think Donald Isn't Pleasant, that... he just says some Latin and they all blow up.
1: I th- But I thought that he also like splashes holy water on them oh. or on the Minotaur. But yeah, he makes everybody blow
0: up. And I'm not sure everybody was touched by the holy water. So it's it's a little foggy. The Latin would have done it. <laughs> but but I, I, I agree if Rob said in the episode that that it was, you know, it was a nice dramatic moment. And I agree in a movie that was uh, somewhat lacking in nice dramatic moments. I felt like that one kind of worked.
1: Yeah, some of the the nicest scenes were Donald Pleasant's doing church stuff. Like, there's a scene where he's praying in that, where, you know, it's just establishing his character, really. There's not, nothing amazing about it, uh, but, but it's a nice se- sequence. It's well-framed and all, and then we get a similar vibe. I mean, these were probably shot at the same location, like, the yeah. same afternoon. They were particularly inspired that day. I don't know. I think that's probably right. Okay, does that do it for today? Yeah, I think we're going to go ahead and close up the mailbag, but we'd love to hear from everyone. Um, yeah, Keep keep them coming in if you have thoughts about current, past, and future episodes of stuff to blow your mind. you have any thoughts about the various movies we've discussed on Weird House Cinema on Fridays? Uh, you know, also just responses to other listener mails or our short-form Artifact and Monster Fact episodes. Um, or the thoughts about where else the, the Monster Fact artifact concept can go. Like, is there something else or the, some other kind of uh, fact to be born uh, I was thinking like, oh, you know, crime, true crime is all the gauge. Should I start doing the murder fact? Oh. Uh, probably not. Probably. Not. I would vote against against the murder fact. Okay, but we're brain we're brainstorming here, so all you know, all ideas are are, uh, are valid.
0: What if it's the Minnow fact and it's just Minotaur facts every week? Oh well, you know, we could we could get we could make that
1: work for <laughs> for probably a month. Uh, but then again, we're just basically doing a a, a sub show of the monster fact so it would be the monster fact minofact fact or something to that effect yeah I guess so except when we're talking about artifacts then it's the monster fact minofact fact artifact mm. and um And then it starts getting complicated. Then we're
0: lost in the labyrinth. Okay, I think we got to wrap it up. All right, take us home, Joe. Huge thanks to our regular audio producer, J.J. Posway, and our guest audio producer today, Chandler Mays. Uh, If you would like to get in touch with us, once again, you can reach us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. The
1: Zumo Zumo Play.